Hear the word of God from James 4:13 through 5:6. Look here, you who say, Today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and will stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated off their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the lords of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Hey. Didn't put my mic on, so that it kind of calmed me down, gave me a little my nerves and stuff. But no, good morning. I'm glad to be with all of you guys. Uh, I don't like preaching in front of the camera. Uh, I like preaching in front of a bunch of people, but I praise God for the technology that he's given us, and we get to use it for his kingdom and his glory. And I think for all those who work uh, and set up this this uh, production each each Sunday morning so that we can... We can do this, and we long for the day when we can worship together. This morning is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. It's this strong, stern warning toward those who are rich, and sometimes we as Americans are like, does that include us? Because a middle-class American has more than almost anybody else in history. We're in the top you know, percent of all of history if you're just a middle-class American. So, so this passage is, is scary. Uh, it, it echoes a lot of things that the prophets said and that Jesus said. And I remember I was preaching on Nehemiah 5 at my previous church, and one of our uh, church members came up to me after it. And the, the gist of Nehemiah 5, I actually preached the same sermon here at Waypoint a couple years ago, is that Nehemiah and the people were busy doing good stuff for God. Well, blatant uh, injustice toward the poor was happening all around them. And I, in the sermon, I weave just how what it would mean for us to have Christ-like justice and how from the beginning of the, of the Bible till the end, the word righteousness and justice are kind of fused together. That the righteous person is not just someone who, all, who just takes care of their own you know, holiness, but they, they execute justice, particularly justice toward the poor. And uh, I remember this one person from our congregation, she came up to me at the end. She's like, like this rocked my world. I, I hadn't thought about this. I always thought about righteousness and it, it's just for me. I never thought about the God's call and God's heart for the poor. She's like, I've read all those passages. I saw it. I knew it was there, but I'm, I'm just going to have to take some time to think. And I feel like for a lot of Americans, that's where we are. We, 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 we hear these passages about the poor and we, we just don't know what to do with them. Does that mean I need to start a homeless ministry? Does that mean I need to, you know, give more, like how do I balance all that? And, and this James passage doesn't give us all the answers, but it moves us in the right direction. And it, it really sums up a lot of the teaching of the rest of scripture. So we're going to dig deep this morning. You guys know I'm, I'm the teacher at heart. So how do we get here in James? So James starts off with this introduction in chapter one, and it says, James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So we know immediately that this is to Jewish people who are scattered throughout the empire, the Roman Empire. And they're probably scattered because of persecution and poverty. They have to move to different places because they needed a job. So that's how James starts off the letter. And some people say James is the wisdom book of the New Testament. And I think they say this because it does go boom, boom, boom. It's like, here's some advice, here's some advice, here's some advice. And it talks about wisdom throughout the book. And it does have a lot of echoes of, of Proverbs 1 through 9, the beginning of Proverbs, which is the wisdom, you know, one of the main 
uh, books about wisdom in the Old Testament. But I would say that James has that element of Proverbs 1 through 9, but I, I would say it's also like Deuteronomy. And it's, in Deuteronomy, it's, it's telling us that God is preparing the people to, to be his people. And I would say James is like, you're a new church. You guys are this new church, and you're part of the kingdom of God. I'm going to tell you how to live as people of the kingdom, as Moses is telling them how to live as people in the promised land. So I see a lot of that. But then I also see some prophetic. You can see direct, like, there are times when James sounds like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Malachi. And we'll actually look at that in the sermon. And then... The main thing James does more than any other New Testament letter is he takes teachings of Jesus and tells us how to live them out. From start to finish, this book is about this letter that James writes to these, these churches, to these people who are suffering. He teaches them, he tells them and proclaims the teachings of Jesus. So it starts off with this greeting and then there's this trials and temptation section. Now I'm going to read an introduction to James by Douglas Moo. He's a New Testament scholar and he studied James his whole life. And here's what he says, you know, and I feel like this is neat because he ties it all together. It's a long quote, but bear with me because it's really good. What were the trials that James's readers were enduring? Poverty must certainly have been prominent among them. James's letter is filled with references to poverty and wealth. And he makes clear that at least the majority of his readers are poor. James 2, 6 through 7 makes pretty clear that religious persecution was one of the causes of poverty the believers were experiencing. Rich people who were slandering the name of Christ were exploiting the Christians and dragging them to, into the court. See also verse, you know, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, where James accuses rich people of killing the righteous by withholding wages from them. We can imagine a situation in which wealthy Jews found the reader's uh, commitment to Jesus as Messiah perverse and therefore harassed them in various ways. By contributing to the reader's poverty as well as their situation as exiles, forcing them to establish themselves in a new and strange situation. And this in turn suggests that the trials James mentions include more than just religious persecution. By stressing that trials were of many kinds, James deliberately casts his net widely including the many kinds of sufferings that Christians undergo in this fallen world, sickness, loneliness, bereavement, and disappointment. I repeated this long quote this morning because it really shows how James encourages them to persevere through the trials. And from beginning to end, we see how he's encouraging them to do that through the rest of the letter, even though he doesn't speak of the trials in chapters 4 and chapters 5. You can see how they're all weaved together. And early on, and back to the summary of James, there's three themes we find right at the beginning. Wisdom, seeking wisdom, having patience, and having faith. And these, these are weaved throughout the rest of the text. At the end of chapter 1, James talks about listening and doing. Then he says favoritism is forbidden. And he starts this theme of how new churches are to be places of equality and unity, not based on your ethnic status, your ethnic group, or social or economic status. The church community that was being formed, this new kingdom communities, these churches that were being formed throughout the uh, Greco-Roman world, they were places that were radically different than any other place in society at the time. Rich and poor were equal. This ethnic group and this ethnic group were equal. When you came to the church, we were all brothers and sisters in Christ. And James is probably the earliest Christian letter, or definitely one of the earliest. And he shows that early, early on, that that's the way, that's the, the, the way of Jesus. Um, then James continues on, and he talks about faith and deeds, or faith and works, like how these two work together. Then in chapter 3, he talks about taming the tongue. And if you didn't get that sermon, Pastor Eric preached a great sermon on that. I encourage you to go back to the podcast archives and listen to it. Then he, James gives us, talks about two types of wisdom. And he talks about this wisdom of the world and then wisdom that comes from heaven. And that this is a peace-loving, full-of-mercy wisdom. And that peacemakers practice this wisdom. And I believe he's referring to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Then we get to chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. Lawrence preached on this two weeks ago. 
and we start hearing these, these, these exhortations, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, come near to God and he'll come near to you, wash your hands, purify your hearts. Then he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Humble yourselves. And then he has this awesome phrase. He gives us more grace. In the sanctification process, we get grace. We need it. Then he says, don't slander. And I would say this slander is just hypocritically judging others. And he's referring back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7 or Luke 6, the Sermon on the Mount teaching. And then, then he goes on to where we are today in the, in the, in the text. James uh, chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. And what can we learn from this? And if you go to Bibles or like commentaries, you know, there's always this, the headings. Those weren't in the original Greek, but sometimes we divide the sections up. ESV, NIV, New Living, all the different translations do it. And some different, this is some different ways that this is, this subheading, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 is divided. One says, a warning against boasting about tomorrow. Another one says, a warning against presumptuousness. I, there's a couple of these nest words that I'm going to have to say this morning. This is from a British scholar, John Stott. So he's, he's forcing me to, to be better at, at my uh, English and my grammar. Uh, a warning against self-confidence. And this is the new living, trying to like give more modern. And this is, this is in contrast to confidence in God. This doesn't mean, you know, the... They, they don't even, the term self-confidence that we have today, they wouldn't even comprehend how we think about self-confidence. They thought of more group confidence, like they got exhorted as a group. And actually, there's an excellent podcast on New Testament letters from the Bible Project. I think it's New Testament letter podcast four about the honor and shame culture that they're coming out of. But I'm not talking about, it's not a warning against trusting in yourself in the, in the way that it's, it's not about that. It's. It's do you have confidence in yourself or do you as a believer have confidence in God and God's way? And, and we'll, we'll flesh that out as we look at the passage. Another uh, way to translate this section, and this actually is summarizing 11 to 17. One, one New Testament scholar says just trust, living by trusting God. So he takes the positive spin. Instead of the warnings, he, he focuses on the, like all these things are like you either trust yourself and the world or you trust God. Uh, so what are the sins that James addresses in this section? The first one is the sin of presumption. The second one is the sin of arrogance. And it's interesting, this is actually called the pride of life in 1 John. This word is only used twice in the New Testament letters here and in 1 John. And it's, it's that same word, the pride, arrogance. Or, and it, it's, it's a fascinating use of this, this term. Um, and the final sin that James addresses in this section is the sin of omission. So let's look at these and kind of break them down. The first one, the sin of presumption. It says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. Wow, thanks. To, way to be encouraging, James. Uh, so there's this sin of presumption. There's this sin that, and, and, and if you really could understand this in the original context, it's just James saying, do you trust God or do you trust yourself? I would argue this is a commentary on Jesus' teaching where he says, do not worry, in, in Luke 12 and in uh, Matthew 6. He's saying, you know, you're going to make all these grand plans you say that you're part of the kingdom of Jesus, but all your plans, all your scheming, it's for your kingdom. It's for yourself. James is trying to, like an Old Testament prophet, like Jesus, bring these warnings to the forefront so that people don't fall into the, the sin of presumption, thinking that it's, it's them that's going to do it. The only reason they have the brain and the money and the resources to do the things that they're doing are because God put them in that situation. If they would have been born a slave in another part of the world, they wouldn't have even had this opportunity. So James is trying to put them in a proper perspective, say, it's not bad to have these things, but it's bad to be presumptuous about them and say it's about you and not about God and building his kingdom. So James is, is you can see how he's, he's doing this because he loves them and he's trying to point them to the truth of Christ. The next sin is the sin of arrogance. Again, like I said, this is called the pride of life in, in 1 John 2, 16. It says, what you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to do this, wants us to, we will live or do this or that. 
Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plan. I love the New Living Translation. You're boasting about your own pretentious plan. And all such boasting is evil. One nice thing about the book of James is it's pretty straightforward. It's one of the few New Testament letters where, even though it was written 2,000 years ago to a Jewish audience in a honor-shame Greco-Roman culture, it's written so straightforward that we can read it and get the general idea of what James is trying to teach us here. He's saying, don't boast in your stuff. Boast, you know, and we'll look at what we can boast in, and we know it's God. You can trust God's will and God's plan, or you can trust your own plans. Those are, those are the only two options. Either you're the Lord of your life, or Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. And actually, if you line up your will with his will, then his plans become your plans, and then you're part of the kingdom, and you, you begin to be his, his child. You know, you join the team, join the Auburn football team, so you can win a national championship, right? I haven't done an Auburn football reference in at least three sermons. So you join the Auburn football team, so you can win a national championship, right? And you, you, you join the team, and you align yourself with the will of the team, you don't go off and do your own thing. I know that's a silly example, but it's very clear that it, to be part of God's kingdom, we have to align ourselves with Christ. We can't follow our own plans or the plans of the world. We put our confidence in Christ. We put our boast in Christ. He's the one who made you. He made you. And he's the one who holds the whole universe together. He's the one who sent the Holy Spirit to fill you and guide and direct you in all things. So it, it just makes sense to follow God. But as we look at this passage, our hearts will always wander in the other direction. And James is just warning us. He's like, come on, guys. Jesus is better. Actually, remember, he was the brother of Jesus who didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And he grew up in the same home as Jesus. I mean, really, it was literally until the resurrection when James sees God opens his eyes. So he, he can say this firmly. He can be like, I know what it's like to not trust in Jesus. He's my brother, my, my earthly brother. The next sin James addresses is the sin of omission. It says in verse 17, remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And I'll address this a little later in the sermon. This, this passage is pretty straightforward, but it's been abused too. Uh, this, this one sentence, it can be used, you know, to defend a lot of things. Because um, the, the big question is, how do we know what we ought to do? And um, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to just get the gist of it. You do have to discern what does it mean. And I'd say that's where the wisdom comes in that James talks about earlier in the chapter and earlier in the, in the letter. And we all know those times the Spirit is telling us to do something and we need to do it. Uh, but I do want to say this. If, if you struggle clinically with anxiety or doubt, or you're struggling because of circumstances, this may seem hard. This passage may, instead of being encouraging, might actually discourage you. And I'm, I'm here to say that the beautiful thing about the body of Christ is if you have this anxiety and you are struggling and you don't know what to do, the good news is, is, is we have the body. And God will put people in your life who love you and care for you and can walk alongside you as you're, you're asking God, what should I do? And this isn't saying you read these passages in James and you read the passages in, in Matthew 6 from Jesus and Luke 12 and then you tomorrow go start a homeless shelter because you want to care for the poor. No, God calls some people into that and that's where you use the wisdom and discernment. So, it, but it's a sin to know when, when God's calling you to something and you're willfully going the other direction, similar to like Jonah did when he, didn't go to, when he didn't go to Nineveh and he goes to Tarshish, which is the answer on the uh, trivia question, in case you guys, and actually we'll get the results of that trivia question later, but I mean that, the results of our waypoint trivia time, but we, we can go God's way or we cannot, and, and we have the body to help us in this. And we have the Spirit, and, and we're going to trust that, that God's going to help us actually live this passage out. And we can do what we're called to do. Now moving on to chapter 5. Um, I'm only going to put two subheadings from different Bible translations. One is warning to rich oppressors. And the second one, and this is one of those nest words i got to practice, 
Covetousness. Covetousness. Say it all at home with me three times now. And covetousness. Against covetousness. Against coveting. You know, it's one of the, the Ten Commandments, not to covet, not to want what other people have. And it's kind of the American ideal, to want what other people have. So we're in this tension. And the section is broken down into these themes. Verse 1, a warning to the rich. Verses 2 and 3, the sin of hoarding. Verse 4, the sin of greed and oppression, oppression of the poor and justice toward the poor. Verse 5, the sin of indulgence, which is probably the American sin, the most common American sin, maybe the hoarding too. Verse 6, the sin of betrayal, like ultimately we kill the person that we do these other things against. So let me start with verse one, the warning to the rich. It says, look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Wow. A lot of people think James is a really encouraging letter and there's some really encouraging stuff in James, but this, this one's harsh. Actually, this echoes the stern prophetic warnings of the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus. In the ESV, it doesn't say uh, weep or groan. It says howl. Howl. No, just kidding. Why does it say howl? Actually, the word is to means in the Hebrew. This is a, a Greek word from the Hebrew Bible. It means to scream in agony. Let's look at Jeremiah twenty-five thirty-four. The other place. This this word is only used in the Greek New Testament here, but here's here's its Hebrew reference. Scream in terror, for the day of the Lord has arrived, the time for the Almighty to destroy. Oh, sorry, this is Isaiah 13, 6. Isaiah 13, 6. Scream in terror. So you see what James is doing? Every Jewish person would know this passage. Now, I don't think that this is actually for the people in the church who are poor and suffering. I think this is an encouragement to them. This is a prophetic warning against those who are persecuting them. But this same warning goes against all the Christians who are in positions of power who, who exploit people. And James will flesh that out in the rest of the section. In Jeremiah 25, 34, it says, Weep and moan, you evil shepherds. Roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock. The time of your slaughter has arrived. You will fall and shatter like a frail vase. You see, James is evoking these two passages clearly in this section. In Luke 6, 24, Jesus proclaims, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And then in 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul says, Paul, this letter is written, you know, 20 years after James was written. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. These are stern warnings to those who have lots of money. And at this point, you might be asking, okay, who is rich? You know, I once hung out with someone who... And I was in my late 20s. He was in his late 20s, a, a good friend. And he inherited a lot of money. And he was living, he was very wealthy. for 20, The wealthiest 28-year-old I knew. And we went to visit him one time. And he took us to the wealthier part of town, near the, ocean, near the coast. And he's, he's like, these are the rich people. And he was my brother in Christ. And I should have said something, but I didn't. And I wanted to say, hey, man, you're rich too. Like, but then I had to look at myself. And even though I was a youth pastor living on youth pastor salary and Erica was a school, private school English teacher, we didn't have a lot, but we were single. We, didn't, we, we had a lot too. So it's always easier to look at the wealthier person and then say, justify, well, I'm not rich. But I would say if you're a middle-class American, you have some riches. You have access to abilities to help people, to help the oppressed. So this, there's part of this warning, or a lot of this warning, is toward us. And yes, Jesus taught the disciples in the early church to use their resources for the kingdom. Jesus uh, allows rich people to be part of his group. Actually, Joseph of Arimathea was rich. He bought the tomb for him. 
Jesus used the resources of these rich people, so he wanted their hearts to be changed. And if you look at Paul, he uses resources of wealthy people, homes of wealthy people, were the original house churches. So God's not saying get rid of all wealth, but he's saying if you have wealth, you better check your heart. And we'll look at some more passages where Jesus really warns us against this. So if we look at these... In this section, there's the sin of hoarding and the sin of indulgence. And I, I put these two warnings from James toward the rich in a category I call gluttonous greed. I just made that term up. Because it's like gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins, and it's, it's more like indulgence. And greed is just, I need more. Now, the best theology sometimes is VeggieTales theology. And when I was a youth pastor, when Maggie was a baby... They came out with this video called Madame Blueberry, and it's probably the greatest VeggieTales ever made because of the tale that it tells. And uh, Madame Blueberry, you can see her picture. She lives in a, a, a tree, and uh, actually, just go to the next slide, and she, they open a stuff mart in her neighborhood, and the stuff mart reps come to her house and say, hey, you need more. And she starts coveting and, and desiring what her neighbors have. Next slide. So she goes to Stuff Mart and just fills the cart. And I, you can guess what they're alluding to with Stuff Mart. We have a lot of Stuff Marts here in, in America. And she just fills her cart because she's jealous of all her neighbors. And then she fills her tree. This is her tree house. But she fills it with so much stuff. Next slide. That it falls over and it all falls into the river. I, I remember my previous, one of my previous churches when this came out. We were doing the stewardship sermon, and my pastor was like, should I even preach, or should I just play this video? And uh, I love it that it's called The Lesson in Thankfulness, because it, it, the, the VeggieTales creators wanted us to think, not of the negative, but of how dangerous it is to have stuff, but how we need to be thankful to God for what we have, and not covet what other people have. Your wealth, this is verse 2. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are, clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. Jumping to verse 5. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. And if you remember the uh, Jeremiah passage that I read earlier, it says your time of slaughter has arrived in Isaiah. This is, this is Old Testament language. This is saying, you got, why did they go into exile initially? Why did they disobeyed God and they fattened themselves and they didn't, they lived for themselves and the injustice toward the poor was the number one way that God could look at them and say, look at your sin. Look at your sin. Look at how you treat the poor. That's part of the judgment that God brings upon them. And James is evoking these Old Testament prophets here. In Matthew 25, verses uh, 14 to 30, Jesus teaches what's commonly called the parable of the bags of gold, which is followed by Jesus telling us how he'll separate people like sheep and goats at the final judgment. So James is evoking the Old Testament prophets and evoking Jesus. This is a scary, the end of Matthew is scary because it's Jesus warning people what it's like for those who don't follow him and don't commit to his kingdom of love and grace and mercy. Then in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, which is followed by the do not worry passage. We're actually going to look at this later in the sermon. New Testament scholar Miriam Kamel in her commentary with Craig Bloomberg, Blomberg on James says this. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James is not commending, uh, sorry, is not condemning, saving, or investing, but rather hoarding. But he comes down hard on that selfishness and even harder on lavish expenditures for self-indulgence. I think this sums up the essence of the idea. Yes, we need to save. We need to invest. We need to build, use technology and the money and the resources we have to build God's kingdom. But it's so easily, it's, it's built on our own self-indulgences. And we hoard and we, we fear. We hoard because we fear because we don't trust God. 
So I want to talk about Legos. I was thinking about this in the sermon. So actually, um, we know some, some of our relatives live in Huntsville, Alabama, and you meet rocket scientists when you go to Huntsville. You, every other person moved to Huntsville because they work in the space industry or the military industry. And you meet these guys, and when they were kids, they all played with Legos. <laughs> and it's fascinating how much Legos were part of creating a generation of engineers, of creative people. It's not the only thing, but it's one of the things. And I, I think about Legos, or I think about painting, like buying oil-based paint and buying uh, canvases and teaching someone to paint. Just think about how much landfills are filled with this stuff. So then is it wasteful or is it helpful? You know, like, is, is Legos a good thing or a bad thing? It builds creativity. Um, but then you're like, well, let's not use Legos anymore. We can do everything on computer because that doesn't have waste. But then the servers that run to have, and all the high-tech computers we have are built with little parts and metals and things that are also wasteful. And then we throw the computers away after years and they fill landfills too. So, so we're in this dilemma. We're in this dilemma of what does it mean to... We don't want to hoard, but we want to use the gifts and the creativity and the resources we have as God's people to create, to build his kingdom, to use. I mean, we're using technology right now to, to, to send this sermon over the internet. When we meet in person, we use technology in the building. So, so there's a balance. And this passage isn't about throw it all out. Let's all go live in caves and get rid of everything. That's not what this is about. But it is about checking our heart and saying, God, do we desire these things? Are we placing these things ahead of you and your kingdom and what you ask us to do? The good news is all this gets sorted out in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus comes back and restores and renews all things. Amen. But until then, God gives us wisdom, patience, faith, and grace. All things that James tells us about over and over again. And if we humble ourselves before God, he will lift us up and he will give us wisdom on this. And we live in Christ's kingdom and we have his assurance. In Matthew 6 and Luke 12, the passages I keep referring to, because I believe these are what James is referring to in this passage, it says that God will take care of all of our needs. In Matthew 6, after he says, your heavenly father knows that you need these things. He knows we need certain technologies so that we can be his church. He knows we need the car to get to work. He knows we need these things. He knows our kids need Legos so they can be creative and paint so they can be creative and use the gifts God given them. But then it says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. This is foremost. Do this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And remember, that word righteousness throughout the Old Testament also contains justice and mercy. It's not just our personal righteousness. It's, it's the execution of it. It means that we execute justice and mercy toward the poor and the vulnerable. So let that, boy, let that kid build Legos and buy that Lego set if God's calling you to that. Build a pool so you can invite neighborhood kids over to enjoy it. You know, don't be greedy with what you have, but it's God's money anyway. Acknowledge that and, and let God work in your heart. Then the next thing James addresses is the sin of greed and oppression. He says, for listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated their pay. Their cry, the cries of those who harvest in your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. This is implying why they are rich. They're rich at the expense of others, and this was never God's intention for his people. Going back to Genesis, actually the, the cry from the ground in this passage is a reference to, to Abel's blood crying from the ground. Uh, it goes back to the law, the prophets, the teachings of Jesus, and the new kingdom he came to bring. And if you notice how it ends, it ends with this passage, the Lord of heaven's armies, sometimes the Lord of hosts. This is the only time in the New Testament other than one passage in Romans where they're actually quoting the Old Testament, where a New Testament writer uses a Hebrew word, Seboeth, which means armies. James is intentionally using a Hebrew word, transliterated into Greek, to say, I'm like the prophets right now. I'm like Malachi. 
In Deuteronomy 24, it says, Never take advantage of the poor and detest laborers, whether they are fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your town. You must pay them the wages each day before the sunset because they are poor and counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out against the Lord and it would be counted against you as sin. Malachi 3.5, the last book of the Old Testament. At that time, I will put you on trial. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You see what James is doing? One theologian, when when teaching on this passage in James, he brings up this hypocrisy of 2008. There's a financial crisis. And the rich people who never let the poor people forgive their debts and charge the poor people tremendous interest, all of a sudden when there's a financial crisis, they wanted all their debts forgiven. And they wanted low interest loans. Hypocrisy at its core. Gross injustice. This is what James is talking about. One standard for the rich, one standard for the poor. And we as the people of God's kingdom have to think differently. We have to act differently. The next thing James brings up is the sin of betrayal. He says, you have condemned and killed innocent people. Some translations say the righteous one or the righteous ones who resist you. There's a play on words in this passage. And innocent people or the righteous ones or even Jesus is called the righteous one. And I believe the play on words is most likely intentional saying when Jesus says, when you do this for the least of these, you've done it for me. So I I would argue that James is intentional here, that this could be translated either vulnerable people, innocent people, or the righteous one, or Jesus, or the ones who are tied to Jesus. As before in, in James 4 verse 2, the murder is probably figurative. It's not literal. But it's basically saying if you hold back wages, it's like murdering this person. This is harsh language. But the example of the person of Christ, we're patient. In the next section, he talks about being patient and suffering. And God will execute justice on these people. But James is warning them, and he's warning us not to be one of these people. So what can we do? What are the action steps? How do we live as people under the authority of King Jesus when we live in a wealthy nation where the ability to easily oppress the poor and the temptation of greed and indulgence abounds? That's the million-dollar question. How do we take the words of Jesus and the words of James and, and live it out in a world where many of us are rich and we could be We're vulnerable to all of these sins that James, because he loves his people, he loves his flock, he warns them about. So the first action step is actually, this is kind of funny, James chapters 1 through (laughs) 4. The entire book of James is basically an action point of how we live as kingdom people through faith, through the faith, wisdom, and grace God gives us. So go back to James often. Go to Romans 12 and 13. Go to the parts of the New Testament letters where it tells us how to live it out. Now go to the parts of the New Testament letters and and the Gospels where it tells us why, who we are in Christ so we can live it out. You, You don't need to just go to one, but James is basically saying, this is how you live it out. And James is is heavy on the Old Testament. He's speaking to them like an Old Testament prophet saying, I I want you to understand Jesus. And I'm going to speak your language. And I'm going to warn those who are suffering. And I'm going to warn those who are causing them to suffer. In James chapters 1 through 4, we talked a lot. He talks about wisdom a lot. So my challenge is ask for wisdom. Seek it throughout the scriptures. There are many passages. Jesus talks more about money than almost anything about money, contentment, and possessions. Actually, the famous Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ, you know, I can hit home runs and throw touchdowns. It's actually about contentment and money. It has nothing to do with winning football games. Sorry to burst your bubble. Go back and read Philippians 4 and and see how Paul is talking about being content, about having a lot or not having anything. Learn from others, learn from the scriptures, learn from others in the body. Some people have gone before you and they've struggled with this. There might be some really wealthy people who God has used to use their money tremendously for his kingdom. So if you come into money, learn, ask. 
Maybe even just give it away without letting your right hand know what your left hand's doing, like Jesus says, so that it won't possess you. But James gives us this wisdom. He says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, come near to God, wash your hands, purify your heart, grieve, mourn, and wail. He says, let there be tears for what you have done. The closer you get to Christ, the more you're going to recognize your sin. And you can cry and cry out to God and, and God will change you. And in that weeping, you'll become more like Jesus. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor, it says in James 4.10. And he gives us more grace. The next, next action step, seek the Lord's will. In verse 4.15, it says, what you ought to say is this. If the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. And a lot of people, I do campus ministry, they say, what's God's will? And I would argue 90% of God's will for your life is already in the scriptures. It's done. It's, it's, it's set in the scriptures. We follow Christ. We live out his kingdom. But there's that 10% that we wrestle with. And as Americans, it's real. Most people in the world who are believers... God's will for their life is to survive the next day and get food for the next day. But for us who have a choice, should I go to this college or that college? Should I do this major or that major? Should I take this job or that job? There is a discerning process. And in this wealth and opportunity that God's given us, we can seek the Lord's will, seek his body, do the things I said that that James tells us to do in in chapters 1 through 4. Next thing, just do it. This is the Nike phrase from the... uh, 80s and 90s, all the older people at home, you guys remember it. I guess, I don't know when they got rid of it, but it was, it just do it. And for Nike, it was like, just get out there and do it. And I, and I think in, there's a similar idea in James 17. He says, remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And remember, this is in the light of the exhortation about making profit and doing what you want to do in contrast to doing what maybe God's called you to do. So figure this out. Do it in community. Do it through the loving God's word and and seeking his word and seeking his counsel. But just do it. Be a person who's about the kingdom, who's about God's mercy, who's about God's forgiveness, who's about his justice. I'm going to put up a picture from the guy named Pastor Obed. And when I was in India, this guy inspired me so much. He went... He's from the northern part of India. He's actually a different ethnic group. And he comes down to, uh, to go to seminary in southern India. And when he's down there in seminary, there's like these civil war type things in his village. And the parents of the children start sending all the kids to, his, to him. So he's a seminary student, and then he ends up running an orphanage. These are all the kids who are escaping the violence and they would be kidnapped and forced to be either like wives or forced to be soldiers in a in a you know like a militia so he goes from being thinking hey i'm getting out of the village and i get to go to seminary in southern india and instead he becomes they literally put the kids on the train they spoke a different language with a note in english that said hey we're looking for pastor obed I think he just knew that that's what he was called to do. So now he runs an orphanage. (laughs) Now, some of our lives may not be extreme as that, but I think we know what we should do a lot of times. God's given us resources and opportunity and gifts. And if you don't know, let's work it out in community and ask God. Here at Waypoint Church, we're praying and seeking God on how we can help the vulnerable and marginalized people in the triangle during COVID. Thank you for all of you who have given to the COVID fund. We've raised a lot of money. Thank you to those who serve at Duke Manor and serve these kids. We want to expand these programs. We, want to, we know kids are not going to be in school, but we're asking God for wisdom. And we feel like it's the right thing to do. We have a partnership with Creekside Elementary where we give the kids food. We may not have that program, so we're, we're going to ask God. We know that there are poor and marginalized people out there, God, and we... We want to lovingly and and showing them mercy, ask you, what what could we do to love them and care for them? Next thing, confess and pray to each other. In chapter 5, at the end, we looked at this passage when we did the prayer time. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. And I think part of the process of 
of being God's person who understands your own wealth and your resources is being, living in this community where you're confessing and praying for each other. Next step, minister to each other. At the end of James, this is the last thing he says. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. God wants us to minister to each other and that includes money and resources and possessions. We're all going to start making idols. This, but we've got to be careful not to judge because he tells us that too. So this, this is a balance, but we need to minister to each other. We need to confess and pray to each other. And finally, we need to listen to Jesus. James points us to Jesus. I'm gonna, there's the parable of the rich fool, and I'm not going to read that. I was going to read that this morning, but you know, this guy, he comes to Jesus, and he's like, how should I divide up my estate? And Jesus says, you know, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And the guy thinks he can just build the storehouse and store all his stuff, kind of like America. And then he says he can take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And this is why I think John Piper and others are like, sometimes the American dream in retirement is a direct contradiction to the teaching of Jesus. But God said to this man, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? This is Jesus speaking. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And then Jesus goes on, and I'm going to read this whole section because I want to end with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus says, then, turning to his disciples, Jesus says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. And I believe he's telling us this too. Whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body is more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store foods in barns, yet for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, What's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom kingdom of God above all else, and He will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, and this is the fear not that shows up throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is saying it again here. Like He says to Moses, or the angel says to Mary. So don't be afraid, little flock. For it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. What's God's will for us? He's given us the kingdom. Not lots of stuff. He's given us the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasures for you in heaven. And and the purses of heaven will never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will, be all, will also be. This is the word of Jesus. So let's be a people who reflect and meditate on and know. And Jesus literally says we can eat the word. Let's eat it. Let's take it in and digest it. Let's digest the teachings of Jesus. Let's absorb it. These, are, and these teachings are affirmed and fleshed out throughout the New Testament. These are stern warnings, and we need to take them seriously. But he's given us his grace. There's two times Jesus meets wealthy people. He meets the rich young ruler, and he says, sell everything. That's what it's going to take for you to follow me. And the guy walks away sad. When he meets Zacchaeus, he says, salvation has come to your house because you gave 50% to the poor. Why does he ask one guy to give 50, one guy to give everything? Because Jesus knew both of them, and he, he needed their heart. Their heart, one guy, he had to give away everything for his heart to turn to God. Zacchaeus, by giving away 50%, it showed that his heart was turned toward God. Let's turn our hearts toward God. 
And I had to have a seventh point because you can't end on six, right? You got to have seven because that's the holy number, right? We're not, this isn't incomplete. The seventh point today is boast in Jesus. Going back to James 4. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your, your life is like the morning fog. It is here for a little while, then it is gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans. And such boasting is evil. So if we're not to boast in our own pretentious plans, what do we boast in? What do we put our confidence in? And I say boast in Jesus. Actually, Paul uses this over and over again in his letters. Boast in the gospel. Boast in the good news that long ago God made a promise to save and restore his people and all the creation. And 2,000 years ago, light broke into the darkness. God humbled himself and became a human. He lived an obedient life. He suffered. He was crucified. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He poured out his spirit. He sent his spirit on the church so that we could be his people. This is the good news. This is our boast. It's good news for the creation. It's good news for all people. And it's good news for you. Boast in it. Put your confidence in it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, Paul's telling them that there's two types of wisdom. I would argue that Paul actually is, knows, he's, already, he's familiar with James's letter. And he, at the end of the, he's talking about wisdom and he says this, it is because of him, God the Father, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, so he says, Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is, this wisdom from God is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is a direct reference from a long section in Jeremiah verse nine, I mean chapter nine, verse 22 and 23, when Paul's summing it up, and it says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's be a people who boast in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We praise you. We thank you. May we boast in you. As we come to your table today, may you be glorified. May we accept your grace and accept your forgiveness. Thank you that we can boast in you, that all our confidence is in you. And thank you that you give us more grace and you give us everything we need to love you, to serve you, and to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.